0: Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's
1: such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. (laughs) It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know.
2: Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis.
1: Happy Monday and the day after Easter. Happy Easter to everyone, and our Lord is risen. And I hope everyone had a wonderful Easter Sunday morning yesterday. Um, it's a wonderful time to take some time and um, and truly focus on what matters to our Christian faith, which is the recognition of the historical fact that uh, Jesus came to Earth and God in the flesh. And um, paid the price for our sins so that we could accept the free gift of salvation and spend eternity with our Lord and Savior. And it's just a wonderful. Um, way to focus on the things that matter instead of the frustrations of uh, this life, which of course we know um, will continue until uh, Jesus returns or calls us home, that uh, this continual struggle against uh, the flesh and a a, a sin-cursed world will continue. Um, But we do need to engage in those battles, and we do need to uh, continue to advance the gospel and to proclaim uh, the truth of our Lord and Savior. And that includes in all realms of life and vocation and family and church and society, which includes um, the truth that men are men and women are women. Um, We we can't really get more basic than that from uh, the very beginning. uh, God made them male and female, and we know that from Genesis 127. And yet, here we are in 2023 arguing about this um, as high up as the Supreme Court. So we'll start there this morning with my first guest. Uh, You know him well, Patrick Morrissey, who is the West Virginia Virginia attorney general and also now running for governor of that great state so everyone listening from West Virginia um, keep your eyes focused on that campaign um, but good morning Patrick and I want to uh, start out with the Supreme Court that uh, declined to enforce the West Virginia law banning trans athletes from girls teams um, this was a frustrating I think conclusion for all of us, seeing uh, what happened from the Supreme Court. But this was just temporary until a more robust and full case makes its way to the court. Um, so how did you view uh, this uh, uh, this action from the Supreme Court declining uh, to enforce the West Virginia law?
3: First of all, Jenna, thank you so much for having me on. And I'm grateful that you're drawing attention to these really important issues. Uh, We were deeply disappointed with the result the other day. But I think you're right. This is a temporary procedural setback. And the reason why I say that is because I believe that once this issue uh, gets fully teed up on the merits, it's going to be very clear that what the West Virginia legislature did is completely consistent with the Constitution. It's consistent with Title IX. It's consistent with basic science and common sense, and as this record goes up further in the process, ultimately we're going to prevail. And, uh, Jenna, one of the reasons I'm so confident in saying that is because we had a really interesting experience in West Virginia where a while back a district court initially, when it was considering the law, slapped an injunction on the law— And then we sat and we waited, and literally over a long period of time, we submitted over 500 document entries, 3,000 pages. And the district court judge, no fan of the law, reversed himself, agreed that the law was constitutional, said that the legislature was uh, correct to be able to say that it was permissible to segregate out and say biologically men are different than women, and so that was a phenomenal victory. Part of the challenge, though, is then it went up to the Fourth Circuit, where in literally an un, there was no reasoning accompanying the Fourth Circuit decision, they slapped the injunction back on, it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided not to rule on the procedural issue. But it hasn't ruled on the merits. And I do think when this gets back to the merits, when the full record is up at the high court, I feel positive that our side's going to prevail.
1: Well, I do too. And that's very, very encouraging. Um, Patrick Morrissey, I'm talking to, to, to the West Virginia Attorney General. And, um, you know, even though some of us were obviously very disappointed in the majority opinion in the Bostock decision, that, of course, read in, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity language into uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act and uh, completely warped out of context that term sex, which was supposed to be a distinction. Between uh, the two genders, but you know, but looking at the harm that occurs uh, in these types of um, sporting events when you have males that are participating in women's sports, um, this is just something that shouldn't stand. It can't stand, and and I think that the Supreme Court knows it's going to have to uh, resolve this issue and um, it can't just kind of sidestep. And that was what this seemed like to me. It seemed like they were just trying to kick the can down the road a little bit instead of um, deferring to the legislative process in the interim. Um, Was that surprising to you or was that something that you you kind of anticipated maybe a 50-50?
3: You know, I think that winning procedural issues at the Supreme Court is never easy. We've done that before, but uh, usually they like to really wait until they think everything is teed up. We thought that the Supreme Court had the authority and the ability to act in this circumstance because I think the record is so highly favorable to us. And one of the criteria that we believe that the Fourth Circuit didn't focus on is the likelihood of the plaintiffs to succeed on the merits. They're not likely to win, ultimately, that we know it was a two-to-one decision when it went through the Fourth Circuit. But in all the evidence that we've shown, I think that we've made our case. So if you don't adequately account for the likelihood of prevailing on the merits, there should not be an injunction in place. And therefore, we thought that we had a strong argument for the court. But I recognize that uh, the court's going to go through its process. We respect the process. We're going to go back through it. Uh, Ultimately, though, Jenna, I think that the common sense, uh, the common fairness, and also I think that the aggressiveness of the position on the other side is going to really work in our favor. Jenna, keep in mind that what we're seeing coming out of this other side is not just really that it's permissible in order to decide uh, whether people participate on the basis of the gender identity, but almost that it's mandatory and that flies in the complete face of the democratic process. That's how we view this case, because the West Virginia legislature was recent. They decided the rules of participation should be based upon biological sex that's assigned at birth. And here we have an, a group of folks who are saying, no, no, that shouldn't be the case. And it's almost they trying to incorporate and force this gender identity position through That's not backed up by the law.
1: Yeah, really, really well said. An important point. And this is why uh, the Democrats are trying to force the legislatures to bend to their will, um, including President Biden, who proposed a rule preventing schools and colleges from banning participation of transgender athletes in sports. And you had a very strong statement uh, against that and condemning that. I mean, this is something that that rightly the state legislatures should contemplate and should be able to set those uh, regulatory distinctions. And yet you have uh, Biden suggesting that somehow um, there should be a federal ban on this distinguishment of uh, the biological sexes.
3: Yeah, I mean, think about this way, Jenna. Uh, We talk about federal overreach all the time. And we look at the Biden administration, and it seems like every single day they're violating the rule of law, they're abusing their power. But here you have an issue that's percolating in the states. And what does the Biden administration do? They start to set up a rule where if you don't do what we want, we will take your money away from you. Now, we've been down this road before where they're trying to hook the spending authority that they have into driving broad new policy issues. But this is an issue that's being addressed well by the states. The states are going to be uh, resolving it up in the courts. And now, I think the Biden administration, to appease their base, they're trying to come up with a broad new interpretation of what Title IX is all about. But yet, when the West Virginia legislature looked at the Constitution, the equal protection issues, Title IX, we had Concluding is very consistent with that approach. And obviously, Title IX was drafted to push forward the differences between uh, biological sexes And that's why we think that this approach from Biden will ultimately fail. But it's an outrageous overreach, and we're going to fight it. Uh, We're going to work with other state attorneys general on comments. And then obviously if they finalize this, we're not going to be afraid to go into court again.
1: Good, good. And and this is exactly what should happen is uh, that the state should fight back. And this is, as you described, Patrick Morrissey, a, a total federal overreach. And this is where uh, we have, as states, lost so much sovereignty and independence from the federal government because so many states Um, are dependent on federal funding and so then there are always strings attached in that way and i would love to see um, more reclaiming of state sovereignty and telling the federal government that you know they need to get out of the way of the states and uh the the process that really is a separation of powers. I mean, we like to talk about the separation of powers between um, the three branches of the federal government, but we rarely talk about federalism, which is the separation of powers uh, between the federal government, the state government, and also we the people who retain certain powers right. under the U.S. Constitution as well. And so um, so where do you ultimately think um, this is going in the sense that do you think that the the uh, ultimate fight at the Supreme Court on this case and this issue is going to happen before the notice and comment period and all of this from the proposed rule happens, or or what's the timeline?
3: Yeah, so I would uh, think this would go in a couple different tracks, and there are a few cases that are ultimately going to move their way up toward uh, the high court. One, of course, is going to be the West Virginia case. Right now, we're back in the Fourth Circuit. We'll complete the process and finish our submissions, and then the Fourth Circuit's going to rule on the merits on our individual case. And then you're going to see the action, of course, with the Title IX release. And that, you know, in a comment period, usually you're going to get about 60 days or so. You're going to submit those in it. Maybe it gets extended. So I would expect that the Biden administration will issue their final comments probably sometime in the latter part of, of this year. And then there'll be court action that begins uh, next year in this process. So I think that it's unclear which case will will move up. Obviously, our case is already at the Fourth Circuit. So it may be that our case gets back up before the broader Title IX issue. And obviously, there's some issues in common uh, between what the West Virginia legislature did and, of course, the opposite, what the Biden administration has done.
1: Right. okay, well, and in just about the last thirty seconds I have with you as well, um you are running for governor. I'm really excited about that for uh, the state of West Virginia. So tell people how they can learn more about that um, and support you for all of our listeners in uh, West Virginia and even beyond, who just want to see really good uh, governors win these races across the country.
3: Well, absolutely. And if you want to see government overreach and woke ideas stop at a state line, look no further than West Virginia because, Our time is coming, and I've been very aggressive as attorney general. Just wait till I bring the full weight and authority of our office to bear as governor, what we're going to be able to do. If you'd like to learn more, if you'd like to help us fight back against the machine and the political elites, you could go to Morrissey.com. That's M-O-R-R-I-S-E-Y.com, PatrickMorrissey.com, and weigh in help volunteer help contribute 25 bucks whatever you can do we have an incredible fight on our hands against the establishment and we need to make sure we prevail
1: awesome awesome well i'm really excited and you know you and i talk all the time about uh, why you know this is this is why we do this because it's fun to engage in these fights and fight for our country so patrick morrissey thanks so much and we will be right back with more here on jenna ellis in the morning on this great monday morning
2: God made his design for marriage and family absolutely clear. Unfortunately, the world listens to Satan and therefore has a totally opposite view.
1: Your friend who is saying, I encourage my daughter to identify as my son because I want to be loving and accepting Christian, you need to say that is child abuse.
3: The Marriage Family Life Conference 2023 wants to restore God's plan. July 6th through the 8th at the Cadence Bank Arena and Conference Center in Tupelo, Mississippi, strengthen your marriage and your family with Dr. Kathy Cook. So they choose the quality, they keep making the same choice, the ability develops, it becomes a natural part of who they are, it becomes a part of their character, it
2: marks them. Ryan Bomberger. We are the ones who care for people after they're born. I mean, one of my parents adopt us and throw us in a cage. Hey, go fend for yourself. No. And many
3: more. The Youth Apologetics track is back as well. The marriage family life conference 2023 for his glory alone register today at marriagefamilylife.net
4: this is pause to pray a chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders
3: today we pray for governor daniel mckee of rhode island he is the state's 76th governor as well as the former lieutenant governor Titus 2:7 reminds us of the importance of character and setting a good example. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity. Right now with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for guidance for Governor Daniel McKee as he leads the people of Rhode Island each day. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
4: Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to PauseToPray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starn. Stand by for news and commentary next. Former NCAA championship swimmer Riley Gaines was brutally beaten by a man wearing a dress in San Francisco. It happened at a Turning Point USA event at San Francisco State University. Miss Gaines was giving a speech about saving women's sports. While at the university, she was violently accosted and assaulted by pro-transgender activists, including a man who was wearing a dress. Police escorted Miss Gaines out of the room and was barricaded on campus for her protection. TPUSA says the riot was organized by the university's Queer and Trans Resource Center. This sort of behavior is unacceptable, and here's what needs to happen. The Resource Center should be disbanded and the students involved in the protest expelled. If that does not happen, alumni should cancel their donations, and Republicans in Congress need to block all federal funding to San Francisco State. Either protect the First Amendment or lose your cash. I'm Todd Starnes.
0: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis
3: in the Morning on American Family Radio.
1: Well, the justice system continues to be weaponized across the country, not just in Manhattan and the indictment of former President Donald Trump, but in Austin, Texas last week, a uh, definitely left wing and I believe Soros-funded district attorney uh, they brought the case to trial and ultimately convicted uh, Daniel Perry, who, of course, uh, was a, a previous uh, Air Force veteran and uh, was carrying a gun during a protest in downtown Austin back in July of 2020. You remember the uh, season of the mostly peaceful protests that were burning down uh, cities, literally, and um, attorneys, of course, for Perry argued that he acted in self-defense after um, Foster, who is who's the man that he shot, raised a rifle at him while prosecutors alleged that Perry instigated the shooting. So when uh, Perry was convicted, um, outrage sparked online from everyone who has been following this case. I'm saying that self-defense apparently is no longer a defense in the state of Texas, which is very troubling. But now the Austin district attorney is saying it's even more deeply troubling somehow that Texas Governor Greg Abbott wants to pardon Daniel Perry uh, for this uh, for this alleged offense. And so um, interestingly, Now, uh, the district attorney is saying, quote, in our legal system, a jury that gets to decide whether a defendant is guilty or innocent, not the governor. Well, um, this prosecutor apparently has no idea how the system works because the power of pardon on a state level for state offenses, which in the state of Texas is a little bit different than most other states with respect to the governor, um, he can't just unilaterally pardon. He actually has to go and uh, request and he can request that from the pardons. Um, board. And Greg Abbott said that he is trying to expedite this through the process. He's made that request and looks forward to signing that pardon uh, when it reaches his desk. Um, but the power of pardon is the last full stop measure against the overreaching weaponization of government by uh, district attorneys or other law enforcement agents of the executive branch that are are weaponizing the system and are either maliciously prosecuting or are going way too far over prosecuting. And the power of pardon should be unilateral, vested with the chief law enforcement officer of the state or the federal government, which is the chief executive. So we've had pardon power um, around a long time, and this is actually something that um, is great that uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott got on this really, really quickly. I was frankly surprised to see that he Uh, did this so quickly. Um, But my guest is Alan West, who, of course, is from the great state of Texas. And um, Alan, I know when you and I were first uh, contemplating this segment this morning, we were thinking about, you know, ranting against uh, Greg Abbott and saying, you know, he really needs to come out and pardon. And he actually he actually has. And um, was that a surprise to you? Or how do you view um, this case overall that this type of thing can occur now in Texas, not just in downtown manhattan
0: Mm -hmm. well first and foremost it's good to be with you jenna hopefully you had a great uh, resurrection day i think it is very troubling because two years ago we should have declared antifa and blm as domestic terrorist organizations what happened back in the summer 2020 in austin was that they overtook the city they uh basically uh, impeded traffic from proceeding on, and Sergeant Daniel Perry is a United States Army soldier. He's stationed at Fort Hood, Texas. He happened to be downtown, and this gentleman uh, who was an Air Force veteran brandishing an AK-47 approached his vehicle and pointed this AK-47 at him. Well, guess what? That's called self-defense. Uh, this thing was not going anywhere, but as you said, the Travis County District Attorney there who is Soros back decided to prosecute the case because as you know, uh, it's always a peaceful protest when it comes to Antifa and BLM. What should have happened at that point was an incredible media campaign that would have, you know, prevented this DA from bringing these charges, but I'm glad that we are uh Governor uh, Abbott is pursuing a pardon here, because if we are going to allow BLM to take over our streets, to brandish weapons, to uh, threaten individuals, coercion, intimidation, all of these tactics, and ultimately violence, uh, if we don't have the recourse of being able to defend ourselves, then what are we allowed to do? So I think this is a very important case, but we still need to declare and designate them as a domestic terrorist organization here in the state of Texas to send a clear message.
1: Yes, absolutely. and it's it's surprising that um, the state of Texas wouldn't do that. and And I feel like Texas right now is a um a kind of testing ground for where the country is possibly headed because Texas has been um, traditionally the you know a red state that we could count on. Um, that was doing the right things and was very conservative. But now we're seeing this kind of teetering toward possibly um, even voting blue in the presidential election in 2024, some Democrats are suggesting, and probably that's because of the liberal hotspots like Austin. Um, and and so how do you see this particular case being um being kind of that that standard um, to show that maybe Greg Abbott is, is serious about saying, no, let's keep Texas conservative and let's make sure that we still understand that in America you do have a right to self-defense?
0: Well, I think that we've had to start being serious with this organization. You saw what just happened recently in Georgia where Antifa attacked a police training facility, attacked police, shot a police officer. uh, And you can see what has just happened here in the state capital of Texas, which is Austin, Texas. So if we do not go on offense against them, and like I said, designate them as a domestic terrorist organization, because you can look at their history. Their history is you know, replete with violent actions. Uh, all you have to do is look at Portland, also as well. Uh, and, and the important thing we have to say is that we're not going to allow you to threaten, intimidate, or enact violence here in Texas. We're not going to allow you to, you know, point an AK-47. At someone who is a service member deployed you know to, to Afghanistan and Iraq and all of a sudden he has to be concerned about his life just driving through the capital city of Texas, no, we're not going to allow that. But the real interesting thing here is that Ashley Babbitt was an Air Force veteran who was shot on January 6, but no one has been brought to uh, you know consequences for shooting her. So the real question is, the left gets to determine what is a protest and what is not a protest. When what is an insurrection, what is not an insurrection? Look what's going on in Tennessee, where all of a sudden they're upset about the two Democrat lawmakers who were you know instigating. A, a protest in, in the capital there because of uh, gun control. So we have got to take back the narrative and we've got to be tougher going offense against these leftist groups.
1: Yeah, so well said, Alan West. And I was so disgusted. With uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, who oh, yeah. uh, you know, the, the Biden administration didn't even comment on the six Christians that were murdered by trans violence in Tennessee, and then when these uh, two Democrats got rightly expelled uh, because they participated in uh, this protest in the Capitol, they they stopped uh, the business of the Capitol from occurring, and and under you know the Tennessee Constitution, the legislature has. Wide prerogative to do that. But then that's when Kamala Harris goes and visits in support of, of the two Democrats that broke the rules. I mean, it's it's yeah. so absurd, but you had um, a, a really great comment that, um, I just wanna read that you actually sent me last week where you said, I'm tired of Republicans who sit back and allow the totalitarian and tyrannical agenda of the leftists in America to thrive. They're intent on destroying our rule of law. So here's an idea to implement, now that we have this local DA precedent, of course, talking about Manhattan, Why shouldn't border DAs and county attorneys, especially in Texas, bring charges against Joe Biden for the crime of violating Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, known as the Guarantee Clause? There's a high crime and misdemeanor that has resulted in the loss of life, property, drug, human and sex trafficking. Let's go on the offense. And I could not agree more that we need to go on the offense. Why are district attorneys who are Republicans so... Hesitant to bring legitimate charges. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, instigating Mm -hmm. weaponization of government on our end, but why can't we actually do what the law requires?
0: Well, that's the whole point. Uh, I don't understand why Republicans can't put on their big boy and big girl pants and. Like he just said, go on the offense, and and when you have these legitimate charges that you can bring, you know, President Biden is violating the Constitution, and the Guarantee Clause said that you're supposed to protect every state in the Union from invasion. We can see the the consequences thereof with the drug, the human, the sex trafficking crisis, the rise of gangs, all of these things. And so, why don't we bring these charges against them? I don't know. Uh, this is a brilliant legal mind such as yourself. You should, you know, challenge these people and ask them. I, you know, when when folks that we're bringing a lawsuit against the Biden administration, so what? Uh, they could care less about that. That's not going to be any type of punitive uh, action against them. So if they can go out and trump up these charges, uh, you know, pardon the pun, against President Trump, you know why can't we take legitimate offenses and legitimate violations of the law, the rule of law, and leverage that against them? What just happened in Travis County was all about, again, a Soros-backed DA in the state of Texas bringing charges against an Army veteran, a combat veteran, who was protecting himself who was defending himself you know i guess we fail to understand that you know if you have an ak-47 out on the streets you should not be pointing it at legal law-abiding citizens and that's exactly what this person did and he was shot because of that so and, and now the person that protected himself has been charged with 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 murder and convicted of murder no this should, this should never have been brought to that case and this d a is trying to send a message so why don't we send a message to the other side? We got to start fighting fire with fire
1: yeah absolutely and and I think everyone listening. Right now, cares about the rule of law, cares about the country, is saying amen to that because we're so tired of always playing defense. And and this yeah. is where you know the power of pardon is great, and you know it will be great if Governor Abbott um, actually signs a pardon. But where does Daniel Perry go to get back, you know, the the years that he has spent having to defend this, the cost of litigation and and defense, where you know we we file these lawsuits and we do all of these things. That that are defensive posture just to get back to the yardage that that we actually had when we started the fight. It's like we never move forward and we never move the ball forward. And this is what you're talking about, Alan West, by actually going on the offensive and holding accountable Democrats to their crimes, to their high crimes and misdemeanors, as the Constitution articulates that term in Article 1, and and holding Joe Biden accountable. I mean, I'm really disappointed, frankly, that the, the new Republican majority in Congress didn't, day one of the new majority, file articles of impeachment against Joe Biden. And a lot of conservatives will mm-hmm. push back and say, well, we don't want to camelize our, our VP. Well, that that's not how the process is supposed to work. So we just let him get away with everything. Everything just because, okay, we don't want, want Kamala, we'll impeach them both then.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's, and and the thing is that if you are letting your political adversary know, or on the battlefield, if you let your, your enemy know what you're not willing to do, that's a gap that they're going to exploit. And that's exactly what we have here, in that we continue to wish away things to When the left are in the minority, they are tenacious. When they're in the majority, they are tyrannical. Uh, You saw them impeach President Trump over hoaxes such as this Russian collusion thing. You saw them impeach him over a phone call, but yet we have viable, constitutional, egregious actions and charges we can bring, but yet we don't want to do that because we're worried about perceptions or we're worried about Kamala Harris. Well, like you just said, if Kamala Harris steps in as president and she uh, does unconstitutional things. And we'll impeach her, too. That's the message that you have to send. But for whatever reason, we're reticent and we're recalcitrant to do that. And you can't win against this very uh, determined leftist mentality because they only know one thing, and that is the right to rule, not the rule of law.
1: Yes. And and they are absolutely manipulating terms, they're manipulating reality. And if we are just sitting back caring about perception and PR campaigns and oh, we don't wanna offend anybody. I mean, even you know, we've been talking about Tennessee, Alan West, and how um it, it's it was so shocking to me and and frankly disgusting that the left was able to manipulate this into somehow um that that we can't even talk about the christian victims because the shooter was a was a trans person and so therefore it's you know oh we need to to feel bad that she wasn't accepted by her family at home and somehow that justifies this horrific killing i mean they they are so brazen in pushing forward their agenda, even in the midst of a school shooting. And yet we can't come out and and even push back at all because we're letting them manipulate the language, definitions, terms and the entire debate. And so we're already conceding the ground before we even get to the fight.
0: Yeah. Three nine year old children lost their lives because of someone suffering from a mental condition. But for the left, it ends up being about gun control and it ends up being about the rights of gender dysphoric people we have got to be more forthright in reclaiming this narrative, reclaiming the, uh, the, the lexicon that is out there and stop allowing them to manipulate their ideological agenda. And if the Christian community can't wake up and see what's happening, that six Christians were killed, they're in a Christian school, planned, deliberate attack, uh, and that no one cares. This, this administration does not care. The left does not care. In other words, they deserve to die Because of this gender dysphoric person, then we 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 can't continue down this path. We got to stop and say we're planting a flag here. We're going to go on offense.
1: Yeah, this is absolutely the hill to protect. And Alan West, always appreciate your thoughts and commentary. So well said. And you know, this is where we can't just keep talking about this. We have to have actual solutions. And I think that what Alan West is proposing here by going on the offensive and using the rule of law, the power of impeachment, all of these constitutional powers of government makes sense. That's what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. So we'll be right back with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning.
2: This is Frank Gaffney, host of Securing America, a program dedicated to protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and His kingdom. Each weeknight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time, we provide insights and recommendations about the most important challenges facing our nation from her most thoughtful experts and patriots. Join me to learn how you can help in Securing America right here at 11 p.m. Eastern Time.
1: So, Hannah, she's just one of the women who did struggle with infertility in the Bible. Hannah's Heart with Ann Cockrell and Kendra White. Hannah took her pain to God, and God heard her and was with her. Hannah's Heart helps couples process infertility and miscarriage through a biblical lens. Join us Saturday afternoon at 5 Central on American Family Radio. Find the podcast at AFR.net.
3: When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people mourn. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. After the widespread reporting of the imminent indictment of former President Donald J. Trump in Manhattan, many were braced to see specifically what crime he was accused of committing. The indictment's release confirms that this is nothing more than a raw exercise of political retribution and abuse of formal process. Legal experts across the entirety of the national landscape have resoundingly concluded that this indictment is vacuous. The most concerning part of this whole debacle is that we have now firmly entered the era of weaponization of government office to destroy political opponents.
2: Pray for America. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hey, it's Bible League International, and in this season of Easter, most of us can go to Mark 16 and read where the angel says to Mary, You're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. He's risen indeed. But you know, that's not true for most evangelical Christians in the region of Asia. They've never read those scriptures in their own Bible. Why? They don't own one because of corrupt governments and majority religions that do everything to stop the advance of the gospel. But it's also because of the mighty move of God. You know, this is where Christianity is growing fastest in the world, but we We know at Bible League that as many as 9 of 10 Christians in the countries of China, India, and Malaysia have no access to the Bible. It is so important for the Bible to be made available in whatever languages that are needed by people to be able to have in their hand and to read it. This Easter season, in grateful response for your own Bible and your love for the Lord and His people in Asia, would you send a Bible at $5, $50 since 10, call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or give it SendBiblesNow.org, SendBiblesNow.org.
0: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in
3: the Morning on American Family Radio.
1: Welcome back. Well, speaking of pushing back against the crazy narratives and the lack of reality from the left, there was a great piece in the New York Post last week that really you need to read the title and uh, the headline is Inside the CEI System, Pushing Brands to Endorse Celebs Like Dylan Mulvaney. Dylan Mulvaney, of course, is the uh, man who is pretending to have 365 days of girlhood and uh, has be- become this TikTok influencer um, that now is a brand ambassador for all kinds of uh, corporate products, uh, most famously last week um, for Bud Light uh, that now is apparently thinking it's a great idea that their uh, clientele who would drink Bud Light, you know, the average person, um, would want to have a dude dressed as a little girl um, on the can. But, you know, okay. So um, so if you're wondering why that is so ridiculous, this article actually talks about how uh, companies are doing this um, who aren't just virtue signaling, there's some other uh, really nefarious issue going on here because they are risk risking failing at an all important social credit score that could make or break their business. So to discuss this more um, is my good friend James Lindsay, who of course is the founder of New Discourses and uh, brought to light initially really everything about the woke agenda and is, I think, um, the most brilliant person talking about this and is the most brilliant person that I personally know anyways on a lot of topics. But um, James, thanks so much for joining me. And i um, Talk about this whole push by companies um, to to do things that seem so counterintuitive to their brand.
5: Yeah, I mean, Dylan Mulvaney being a brand ambassador for things like Bud Light and Nike and all of this is just the tip of an iceberg that we're all very aware of. You know, we've seen it with other large corporations. We've seen Disney. We've seen uh these hockey teams i mean you go you you go down the list there's this enormous push you see pride airlines all the all of the major air carriers in the united states are pushing into lgbt visibility uh as part of their marketing and and you have to wonder what's going on and as it turns out there is more to the story than merely trying to appeal to a uh demographic of millennial buyers that they may think is some kind of an untapped market. It's not just business as usual. There's a score that's put out by the Human Rights Campaign called the Corporate Equality Index. Actually, they put out a bunch of different scores. There's one for public utilities called the Municipal Equality Index as well. And the scoring system is out of 100 points, and it determines how well you're adhering to what the HRC believes is uh, correct I guess they call it equality, but LGBT visibility uh, and inclusion measurements. And if you don't have a good score with that, you lose your seat at a lot of tables. Uh, corporate recruiting becomes very difficult. Your ESG score can get dropped. Uh, there are many punishments for, for corporations that don't play along with earning this score from the HRC.
1: Well, so why, why- – does everyone care so much what the HRC says? I mean, this is like, you know, pretending to care what, um, you know, the, the southern poverty law firm wants to say about anything. I mean, how did they become the gatekeeper to what, um, the, what score these large companies and corporations should have in order to continue having their seat at the table?
5: So that is a sixty five million dollar question, or whatever they used to say back when things were cool on t v um, with inflation
1: it's the, more like sixty five billion but yeah
5: okay, yeah, exactly and so the the reason is almost certainly that the c e i is used as the proxy to determine their e s g scores the social and governance scores under uh under e s g so it's environmental, social and government governance are probably in part determined just by checking, well, what is their CEI score? Because what goes into the the Corporate Equality Index is, do you have the right kinds of internal workplace policies? Do you go out of your way to make sure that you hire enough LGBTQ people? Do you have uh, – so those are governance scores. Do you, uh, you know, take part in activities to increase LGBTQ visibility? That's an S score, a social score. Do you put in policies to make – uh, LGBTQ inclusivity, a priority at your workplace, things like this, and so these are your S and G scores under ESG, and so it's probably used as a proxy, but this is a this is a question that I have not yet determined the answer to. Uh, it, there's a bit of opaqueness, but what you've seen is from 2002 forward is that corporations have been extremely enthusiastic about trying to get a perfect score on their CEI. And you have corporations across the board, American Airlines, for example, Anheuser-Busch, et cetera, bragging about how many years, maybe even almost back to the beginning, that they've maintained a perfect CEI. And so there's something causing corporations to not just desire to, to have this score as a feather in their cap, but to really take pains to earn a top score. And that's actually the deeper part of the story that uh, people, I don't think, understand. It's not like the HRC published a checklist, and if you get the checklist, you get your 100. It's that you have to do things every single year, new things, in order to maintain your score. If you earned a 100, say, five years ago, you've had five years of new requirements added to you to keep your score every single year, uh, which operates like an extortion racket.
1: Yeah and and so then this makes more sense why companies for example Bud Light who are putting you know, a, a dude pretending to be a little girl on their cans, and, and you and you would think that this completely is antithetical to their brand and to their consumer base, or you look at corporations like Disney, who are, you know, they cater to families, and, and families are their number one clientele, and yet they're doing things that are completely turning off so many of the traditional families, and you wonder why, and then you look at, and this article actually posts Um, The woke rating for the human rights campaign. And one of those things that you mentioned, James Lindsay, is uh, is not just getting positive points to get to their their 100 point score. um, All of those things that they're affirmatively doing, but also the fifth requirement is responsible citizenship, as they term it which you can get points deducted if a company gives money to organizations whose primary mission includes advocacy against LGBTQ equity or equality, which isn't really defined but could include, for example, Christian groups or things that appear to be non-woke. So so this makes sense why we're just seeing this increasing um, bending over backwards from these giant corporations to do things that are increasingly absurd.
5: Yeah, that's right. And, and the demands that the, the HRC can put on, on corporations can be rather uh, alarming, as a matter of fact, uh, to to keep their, their scores up. With regard to... Um, Bud Light, in particular, two years ago or three years ago—I forget exactly which year—they uh, donated some amount of money to some political candidate for office who was deemed conservative, and so there was a protest at Stone Hall, Stonewall where they bought a bunch of Bud Light and poured it out all of these gay activists. And the HRC put them on notice and said that they had to, you know, correct for this or else they would incur the wrath of, of those negative points, and so they had to, you know, play catch up. I've heard from a whistleblower directly that uh, the major airlines last year were told that they had to provide free and reduced price air, air flight uh, airplane tickets to Pride activists to go to different Pride events around the country because flights are expensive uh, in order to keep their 100 CEI. And so they are going around, and the, the HRC is going around to corporations and making demands. Now, are they demanding specifically that Dylan Mulvaney become a brand ambassador, or is this just – you know, millennial uh, ad execs deciding to make a bad decision that would be consistent with this, I don't know specifically. I haven't seen any evidence directly that they are specifically saying elevate Dylan Mulvaney. But these patterns of behavior have an explanation, and that explanation is not business as usual or trying to cater to or appeal to um, a particular segment of the market that seems to exist only in Brooklyn. Um, There's something deeper going on, and our corporations are actually operating under under the logic of a cartel not a market if this is the case
1: yeah and and it seems like the the pressure from this CEI score and these companies, whatever the threat is, and why why they feel like they have to comply, is across the board because we've seen so many companies. I mean, you know, June is coming up, and you you can't go anywhere without seeing a pride flag in the window, and everybody changes their logo, and it's like you know, it's it's more intense than Christmas in this country. You know, I mean, it's it's just insane. But then, um, but then you look at, okay, what, what do other companies and corporations who are openly Christian, like maybe Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A or, you know, some, some of these other corporations that are notoriously, um, meaning just openly Christian, have we seen any tangible um, negative impacts for companies that aren't going along with this?
5: That would be a good question to look into. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, it's probably the case because this thing is is, is trying to contour the entire business space. Uh, something I do know that when it seems like it's virtually every company and that so many companies are are subject subjected to it, it's virtually – it's very close to – I forget what the exact number is, 837, maybe 840. It's about 840 large corporations in the United States are boasting they're a perfect 100 CEI right now, with other companies you know rating in the 80s and 90s and, and proudly reporting on their websites that they're doing everything they can to get that score up. It would be very interesting to take a look and see where a company like Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A lies, and then to see if they have some kind of a commitment listed on their website or if they've made any kind of a statement about it. Uh, for whatever reason, though, um Thousands of American companies are subscribed. You have to sign up to be part of the CEI program. What that gets you, I'm not exactly certain, Uh, but you end up on the HRC website and they celebrate you if you are are doing well. You get listed if you have a 100 as a best place to work, and this is apparently a coveted status because every company that seems to achieve this when they get their 100 puts it out as a press release as a big deal. Uh, They want people to know that they're listed as an LGBTQ best place to work. Um, So there is a a, a very deliberate effort to try to bend corporations in that direction. What that means for companies like Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A is Mm -hmm. a, uh, I think, valid research project that shouldn't actually be too hard to look into.
1: Well, if you end up taking up that project, um, please let me know, and we'll uh, we'll come back and have another conversation. But, um, but you know, so Vivek Ramaswamy, who um, you know listeners here know well because he's on um, the show weekly, he was also quoted in this piece talking about um, big uh, fund managers like BlackRock who all embrace the ESG orthodoxy and how they apply pressure to top corporate management teams and boards and um, determine, in many cases, executive compensation bonus. Things like that. And so he's suggesting that they can make it very difficult if companies don't b- abide by that agenda. And the piece goes on to actually quote BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, who says that society is demanding that companies serve a social purpose. And he let it be known, quote, that if a company doesn't engage with the community and have a sense of purpose, it will likely lose the license to operate from key stakeholders. Unquote. So, um, so it seems like this is more of a of a public pressure campaign, and and you know, and then there may be other consequences like we've been talking about, James Lindsay. But um, how then does this kind of notion of um, conservatives boycotting actually? help any of this because i've i've never been convinced that boycotts actually work or that they um that they that there's enough social pressure to encourage companies to change um the way that they want to run because i think that they believe that there's there are enough people who buy into their products anyway that they can just continue this and it won't matter
5: yeah i don't think boycotts are going to work and of course and in this sort of tragically hilarious uh weekend where, you know, people decided to have their barbecues on Saturday or whatever, and they were going to boycott their Bud Light, and they proudly put that they had their Coors Light instead, and the Coors Light, as it turns out, also has a perfect CEI score, and they have their rainbow-colored cans and everything else out there, too. And so it turns out that they didn't actually succeed by trying to boycott one beer and going to a different beer, because virtually every company is going to do it. It, it. With the airlines, all of the airlines have perfect CEIs. Which one are you going to boycott? Uh, they all have a perfect score, and so they're all participating. You can't get away. You're upset that United is is doing this, so you go to Delta, but Delta's doing it, and then you go to American, and American's been been proudly having a 100 since 2002. Uh, <laughs> simply not going to get away from it by trying to boycott. Now, when Larry thinks that this is a public pressure campaign, uh, this is a kind of a a trick that he's playing with language. There is some truth to that. They have brainwashed a segment of the population to throw a gigantic fit and to refuse to participate in anything that's not, as they say, socially responsible. This is very common, particularly with the millennial generation, especially younger millennials uh, and some of the older so-called Gen Z. It's not that popular with people that are Gen X and older. Um, So there is a pressure campaign. And then if you play a game when you say that, you know, people are demanding and you and it's like when four out of five dentists agree, but nobody's ever heard of any of these dentists. And it just so <laughs> happens that you can say that people are creating a public pressure campaign. It is true. Some people are. But it doesn't seem to be that it's a majority of the population, and we hear this again and again and again from the left lately, which is the yeah. people, and in particular young people, are demanding. And what the way that works well, and, and, and we're out of time
1: here, unfortunately, James Lindsay. I want to continue this conversation. We need to be very well aware of this, and also provide solutions. We'll continue that with more next time on Jenna Ellis in the morning.
2: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast